People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Rodney Trudgeon welcoming you to this week's edition of People of Note here on Fine Music Radio. Well, the UCT Summer School Lectures are upon us, and on the 22nd, 23rd and 24th of January at the Baxter Concert Hall, there will be a series of lectures titled A Brief History of Harmony, the Universe and Everything, with people like Vox, Cape Town, Becky Stelsner, Albifan Skalkbeck and so on. And the lectures will be given by Grant McLaughlin, a musician who grew up in Pretoria and Cape Town, where he was at school at Bishops. He moved to the UK to study at Magdalen College in Oxford, where he was a choral scholar under the legendary Dr. Bernard Rose, and actually graduated with a first-class degree in music in 1978. He also spent two years teaching in the choir school at Chichester Cathedral, enrolled for a master's degree in composition at King's College, all places we know well. And now he's back in South Africa and has been for a while. And among the many things he does is write music for every imaginable creature, a fair amount of film music and other things which will come to Grant. Welcome. It's good to have you here. Morning. Thank you. You're one of those guests who I think should have been on long ago. But anyway, it's nice to finally have you here. This title, before we start talking about you and your background of your lecture, is quite teasing almost. A Brief History of Harmony, the Universe and Everything. Sounds like um, Bill Bryson, you know, he teases <laughs> you with titles. Well, I'm trying to um, encompass things which go through the history of music and link things up. So the book Sapiens by Harari, for example, is one inspiration for that title. Stephen Hawking is another one. Oh, okay. So, and I'm trying to maybe connect music with other disciplines such as physics or architecture or art and then try to see what strands uh, connect music from different eras. So basically I'm covering about a thousand years of music history in three, <laughs> three evenings. In three evenings. Yeah. Can you give me an example? I mean, how would you, for example, connect music with something to do with physics? Or, I mean, just sort of a little well, example to whet our appetites. Well, one thing I'll begin with is to demonstrate the harmonic series. So, for example, on the cello, that string that you play is 64 hertz, 64 beats a second. If you touch your finger halfway through the string, you get an octave, which is double the frequency. So first of all, the physics connects with something which we understand very easily, which is an octave, and our brain understands it. And then you could say a third of the string is a fifth. And hopefully that's about as technical as I get. And running through history, we have this dominant tonic thing. And every single period of music... Um, relates to this thing, and it's not, and that that is purely science, and how brain reacts to it, and then music will react, treat that toning dominant in different way at different in different centuries. And you are presumably going to illustrate this all through all through. Yes, I'll illustrate that, and I'll be using, as I said, I've got different musical groups on each evening, and I'll be using them to demonstrate certain things. For example, there will be a cellist there showing how the harmonics work and so on. Okay, okay. So you're going to also make it accessible, I hope, because talking about things like that can be quite technical, especially when you consider that music does have quite a mathematical physics side to it in a sense, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to, I'll be using a PowerPoint with sort of some diagrams to help people. And I'm also going to have traffic road cones sitting on the stage <laughs> to, to demonstrate where the tonic and the dominant and so on is. But as I say, I won't go more technical than that. Mm -hmm. And, for example, when you get to Chopin, I'll be 
demonstrating one of the nocturnes and how the, uh, Chopin uses, manipulates his audience to delay and delay and delay the tonic and finally gives satisfaction at the end. And things which relate very well. And also um, architecture, for example. Um, the 16th century music, you could compare to a Tudor building where everything is not that well connected. Room leads to room, leads to room. Whereas in the 18th century, architecture becomes very formal and very very designed, rather like, say, how Bach or Mozart is constructed. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's interesting. So I'm trying to, uh, no, t- I'm trying to make all these different connections. I, th- I, th- uh, I think it's going to work, especially with architecture. Did you? There's a quote somewhere, I don't know who made it, who said that architecture was frozen music that oh, I've always thought is a fantastic well, description. I think when, when I was about 10, I, I wanted to be an architect. And I think I've always have been a, a sort of frustrated architect because architecture and composing have in common that they're both working in 3D. It, in composing, you've got harmony, which is vertical, co- counterpoint, which is horizontal. And then you've got time, which is the third dimension. And that's the one thing which I talk about the age of the concert which is basically 18th century to 20th century. Mm-hmm. And that is when the composers try to manipulate time in the way that they create these very symmetrical f- structures, you know, ABA structure. You, yeah. you, you have a recap, which is trying to manipulate time, whereas before that, they didn't really do that. The famous sonata form, yes, absolutely. Uh, which has really dominated yeah. for so long, hasn't yeah. it? So we have example of that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And where would you stop? Because we're talking about harmony, you're talking about major and minor, but then what happens when everything slides off into the 20th century well, the twen- and it goes yes. atonal? Well, the 20th century is, 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 is a sort of unique problem. And um, I'm including Debussy because Debussy is not only the most, pop- the most accessible or the most accessible of those 20th century composers, or the early 20th century, mm-hmm. but also uh, probably the most radical in the, in the way he uses the harmony. And then Messian, which... Uh, I've uh, look at this. It's a very personal journey, and, these, of course, and I'm, I'm sure. choosing my own favourites. But Messian, in, um, and I'm choosing a, a, a quartet which was he wrote in the prisoner war camp called the Quartet of the End of Time, which also links up to the universe and everything mm-hmm. I'm talking about. But the interesting thing is, is that, for example, most of the music we deal with is divisive. So you have four beats a bar, and you can divide it into eight beats or twelve beats, or you can divide it into three beats per beat, and so on. Messian was very interested in ancient Greek meter and also Indian music, where you add the beats. So you take away our normal meter, and you, you get a completely different sense of time, because you might have a bar which is f- 5 plus 3 plus 2 plus 5 beats, instead of just 4 divided into 8. Okay. And so I talk about that in particular. And demonstrate that, it. And demonstrate that. Mm-hmm. And that's very accessible. Uh, the audience is really a concert-going audience, but not a musically trained audience. Right. So that's what I'm aiming at. And I think that's important to get that yes, message absolutely. across as well. Absolutely, but yeah. now we've come to your first piece of music and we're going back, I see, in time. Tom Stallis, yes, yeah. tell me what you've chosen and why. Well, uh, when I, I went as an undergraduate from Cape Town straight to Oxford, and I was very lucky enough to become a choral scholar there, which meant singing even song daily. And you virtually, you go to rehearse at five o'clock, you sight read, and then you sing even song. And this happens six days a week. And I was plunged into this, into this amazing world of early music, and particularly English music, which I find far more interesting than continental in many ways. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Um, and Thomas Tallis, to me, is the towering genius of the 16th century. And what's interesting is that we talk about dissonance and resolution, and it becomes a normal part of what we understand as music. You have a dissonance and you resolve it. Before the 16th century, this didn't really exist. And this example, this Tallis example, really shows how this must have been incredibly avant-garde for its time because it's, it's got rolling dissonance after rolling dissonance. And the harmonies are very complex, 
and absolutely beautiful. Music there by Thomas Tallis. What was that, Grant? Tell me what that was. That was um, a work, Videte Miraculum, which is in fact a Christmas piece. Um, six parts. The performers were the Taverner Consort by Andrew Parrott. Okay. My guest on People of Note this week here on Fine Music Radio is Grant McLaughlin, a composer, and he is doing a series of talks at the Baxter Concert Hall for the UCT Summer School that we've been talking about, A Brief History of Harmony, the Universe, and Everything. You said just now something quite interesting. You said Debussy, you thought, was possibly the most radical. Did you use that word? Yes. um, But I have to throw this in because (laughs) what about Wagner and his what he did with Tristan and moving to the edge of tonality as we Mm. know it? Well, that to me, I I don't quite agree with that because I find (laughs) Wagner's tonality fairly straightforward in the so-called Tristan chord, just to be technical, is is just an elaborate French sixth. Okay. <laughs> so somebody who studied the harmony <laughs> would know that. And I would find, for example, late Brahms far more radical than Wagner. I mean, really? He, he, the late clarinet works in the last five years of his life, mm-hmm. the second clarinet sonata. In fact, I include a Brahms piece 
um, is as part of this. Uh, it's a piano piece which has been arranged for the quartet, which is um, violoncello, clarinet, piano. Okay. And the thing about Brahms is, is that the metaphoric development and all the his structural changes and things, I think, were far more influential on somebody like Schoenberg than Wagner was. Okay. This is very interesting because, mm. I mean, you're saying things that uh, the Wagner fanatics won't yes. agree with. Uh, I'm not yes. saying I'm a technical Wagner fanatic, but I was lucky enough to see Tristan mm. in Berlin when I was there last month. But... Um, and read quite a bit about it, and once again, I was struck by this fact: uh, the sort of never resolving, the constant yes. chromatism, yes. Uh, the the chords never, the suspensions, nothing ever mm. resolving. But you're saying yes. that that's not quite possibly as radical in your yeah. mind yeah. as to be. Well, I think the idea of suspension being delayed is is certainly true, but th- but in, in technical harmonic terms, uh, I think that's been a little bit over overrated. The mm-hmm. the uh, Wagner's chromaticism, and I th- I think other people, I mean, certainly people like Scriabin and Debussy, are way more radical. Okay, and with Debussy, what what is? How, I'm interested to know what you think is radical about Debussy. Well, with Debussy, well, again, I talk about this. Is that throughout the, the history of music, we've got this function where the the whole point of the fifth of the chord dominant mm-hmm. is to resolve into the tonic. That's his purpose in life. Debussy, famously, I think, in one of his lessons, uh, wrote a whole lot of chords just one after the other, disjointed. And his teacher said, oh, you can't do that. You're not following the rules of harmony. And Debussy said, well, I, I like the sound of it. That's, <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> and I think what is radical is that, for, for one thing, he, he reached out to the East. He was interested in sort of Balinese music mm, and, that's right. and things like that. And he introduced, and another thing, the so-called whole, whole tone scale. And in the whole tone scale, you can't have a dominant. It just doesn't exist. And so you get a sort of displacement of time displacement of sort of harmonic context. You don't feel one chord leading to another. You've just got these beautiful colors. And and I think it's recognized. I mean, the, uh, people like Messiaen, for example, I think Debussy was probably the strongest influence. Oh, really? That's interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. And if you're just listening to Debussy, mm. it doesn't sound that radical instantly on the ear, does no, it? No, no. But I think conceptually, the way the tensions and so on work on is very, very different. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, Schoenberg probably carried on the trajectory of you know, of Wagner and Brahms. But Debussy was the one who actually pointed in a completely different direction. Okay. It's very interesting what you say. And to have listened, are you, I'm getting all interested in this uh, coming lecture <laughs> now. So do you, are you going to stop before you get to the atonal composers like Schoenberg? Well, yes, no, I, I haven't got that. I mean, it gets, I had to sort of be selective somewhere. Yeah, yeah. I did want to do a very recent piece, but uh, but, but I think the, ending with the Debussy quarter end of time was was probably the wise thing. But in fact, I, I shift the timelines, and that's the second evening. Mm-hmm. The third evening, I go back and do the Baroque. Oh, okay. So Baroque, that's, that's, that's Monteverdi up to Bach. And one reason, I, well, partly because it's, it's nice to have the, the Baroque ensemble to finish the evening, end with the Bach cantata, but also that our modern harmony was basically established by the time... A time of Bach, yeah. I mean that, and nothing has really radically changed since then. I, I don't think oh, everything okay. is still adapted from then. So know. what what will you start with? Yeah. Starting with Monteverdi, oh, on the first evening, uh, no, on the second evening. Well, yeah. I'm, the first evening I'm starting with. Well, I make a reference to the very earliest known musical instrument, which is a bone flute dating from forty two thousand BC. Good grief! And then I've got an ocarina. Now the ocarinas date back at least twelve thousand years, mm-hmm. and they're the same principle. You can play a major scale just with a little wood, wooden thing with four holes. Yeah. 
And they're so, amazing instruments. Yes, those. They sound like a recorder, actually. Yes, they are. In fact, they're very beautiful. Yeah. And I've got a beautiful little one I'll demonstrate. And the thing is, I can play a major scale, and this is 12,000 years old. <laughs> so, I mean, what's changed in 12,000 years? <laughs> so there must be something fundamental about that. Mm. And then I start with, with medieval plain song, one or two pieces in the medieval era. And then, but the combination of that first evening is basically the 16th century English, which is Talis, Shepherd, uh, and Tompkins, and a bit of Palestrina as well. Okay. But, uh, because of this, as I just said before, the dissonance that comes in, because the, the music from the late 15th century almost has no dissonance at all, apart from very s- slight dissonance or cadences, suddenly plunged into this very modern music in the 16th century. And I can't help but um, compare it to what's happening in the world. Because there's Columbus discovered America in the 1490s. There's Bartholomew Dias and Vasco da Gama discovering the Cape. And, and most important of all is movable type. You know, for suddenly, instead of just printing uh, etchings, now we can, we can print pamphlets using movable type. Mm-hmm. And between 1450 and 1500, more books were printed than in the entire history of the world before that. Gosh. So it's rather like the Internet. There was a massive information release. And we're talking about yeah. the 1400s. We're talking about late 1400s later. and early 1500s. Uh-huh. And you know, and the world changed from a sort of religious belief in that that the world was certain because the church told us how it worked into an uncertainty. Again, this mm-hmm. is from Harari's book Sapiens, an uncertainty where science certainly tells us we don't know everything. Yeah. And this, it cannot be a coincidence that this is the same time that dissonance is introduced into Western music. Isn't it interesting if you take that approach? Yes. Thank you, Grant. Yeah. That's given me some food for thought. But <laughs> when was the Age of Enlightenment? The Age of Enlightenment is, is also fascinating. That's, that's mid-18th century. Oh, so it was much later. For yes, yeah, mid-18th yeah, yeah. yes, mid century. But that's also the second evening I call the Age of the Concert. Mm-hmm. Because the earliest building in Europe to be built as a concert hall is the Hollywood Music Room in Oxford, which I know well because as a student there which was built in 1748. Gosh, my goodness. So the concert didn't really... Specifically to give concerts. Specifically to give concerts. So before... So people like Vivaldi and Bach clearly wrote concerts before people. But but it only was really established by the Age of Enlightenment, Mozart, Haydn. Mm -hmm. And before that, people... The music was... You heard in the church as part of a religious service or you heard it in theater as part of an opera or in background entertainment. But now suddenly you've got people sitting in rows giving 100% of their attention to the musicians. And what happens is the musicians, the, the composers now have to react to that. And the reaction, of course, is sonata form. Mm-hmm. They have to entertain the audience now. There's yes. nothing else to, to, to keep do them interested, yeah. to give them a challenge. And so that, that's the, what I call the age of the concert, which goes right up until the mid-20th century. Well, we're going to come back to that in a moment, yeah. but another piece of music, Orlando Gibbons, so we're still quite early at the yes, moment. Yeah. Second service, what is this? What are we going to well, do Well, Orlando Gibbons is about 100 years later than Talis. Now, what's okay. interesting is that he was more or less contemporary with Monteverdi, but there was a bit of a hangover from the Renaissance. So he, he sort of straddles the Baroque and the Renaissance. And, and this music is, to me, is, is the absolute epitome of lyricism and passion, and it's the most extraordinary heartfelt, energetic music. I mean, a lot of people talk about Renaissance music as being ethereal. I don't think so at all, particularly in England. It's, it's full of energy, full of passion. And, and this is one of the, one of the most beautiful examples that, that he wrote.
music there by Orlando Gibbons called The Second Service and another choice of my guest on People of Note this week. I'm talking to Grant McLaughlin, a composer and lecturer doing a series of lectures at the UCT Summer School called A Brief History of Harmony, the Universe and Everything. Grant, one of the things you spoke about which was so interesting just now about this dissonance thing tied it up with various things in the world. I remember a psychology professor I knew in Pretoria used to go on about trying to get to the bottom of why certain keys and suspensions all that affect us humans because even if you know nothing about music a certain sound in music and a little corner at my turn or an, an added or subtracted note affects us emotionally and I wonder why that is and I don't expect you to have the ideal answer <laughs> well I think it, I think it's very very complex yeah there's certainly certain harmonies and certain combinations trigger things in the brain, mm-hmm. you know, whether it triggers endorphins or whatever, to, to make you feel satisfied. There's certainly the, the, the dissonance resolution thing. It, it is something which which gives a satisfaction when you finally resolve. Right. It's almost like if you climb the mountain, and it's a bit painful at the time, but when you get back, you feel very satisfied that you've had the exercise. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, I think <laughs> that's how I see the dissonance resolution thing. Mm-hmm. And, and composers play with us in, in certain ways. They um, tease us. They tease us. I think in Baroque music, it, it happens very quickly. Mm-hmm. You have the, a dissonance resolution, dissonance resolution. And the late romantic music becomes more and more drawn out, and then the resolution can, can take minutes, 10, mm. 20 minutes to resolve, yeah. or if not hours. It is, uh, and you know, you wonder why the human brain or whatever, heart, mm. emotion reacts to why does G minor sound so sad and melancholy compared to D major? Yes, I mean, well, there are obvious yes, answers, but yes. I wonder why we react like that to those sounds. Well, I mean, for the major, the major chord is directly related to the harmonic series, which can you, you can explain with mathematics. Mm-hmm. And so the brain probably understands it. Minor one is, is more difficult. I'm never not quite sure. <laughs> but certainly people say that D major sounds different to E major. Yeah. And yeah. I think the reason is that our tuning system only really became fixed in the early 19th century in the um, what we call equal temperament, which is yes. what like a modern piano, we, where everything is, all the keys technically should sound exactly equal. Bef- in the 18th century and earlier, each key had, a, whatever key you played in would be slightly different tuning. Mm-hmm. And so a C major might be brighter than something than, than an F sharp major. Okay, gosh. It is, a, that, that in itself is a fascinating. Mm, yes. But um, Grant, just to, what made you want to do these series of talks? It sounds as though it was a wonderful challenge mm-hmm. and it sounds like you've loved doing it, and um, everyone's going to be hopefully <laughs> well, suitably enthralled. Yes, well, I'm, I think as a composer, I've drawn from music from all different centuries, but, uh, and I'm particularly interested in, in, the, in the sort of 16th. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one of my absolute passions. And over the years, various questions have been coming up, and I said, how do you resolve this? And I think I also read a book by my former tutor at Oxford, who David Wilston, who died about two, three years ago in his 80s. And he wrote this one book, and he's very controversial, and he brings up all these questions. And I thought, right, okay, there's something here to be told. Mm-hmm. And also, for example, the major third, which we think is this beautiful consonant in- interval, is has always been a problem, and it's got a very deep history. And one day, I actually like to write a book on the major third because it's so <laughs> complex. Yeah. So, uh, well, but as I say, in the lectures, I can't go too technical, and I'm mm-hmm. and I'm just trying to connect the dots between the centuries. Yeah. Look, I think the greatest thing about this is not going too technical, no. but at the same time, making people sit up and think. Mm. Because as you said, they're not people who are doing music degrees, yes. yeah. but they're intelligent, they want to know yes. more. And that's always been my thing, to know a little bit more, uh, present it to you in an accessible way, can enhance your enjoyment of music hugely. Uh, uh, absolutely, yes. And in fact, what I'm doing in this 
I mean, for example, the Bach cantata I'm doing, which is absolutely full of dissonance. It's quite extraordinary. The first chord is a very strong dissonance, which is almost unheard of. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll get the orchestra to play the first eight, the first beat of each bar, the first eight bars. And as an, on its own, it sounds like an avant-garde piece because it's all completely dissonant. <laughs> just when you just take the first yes, note. when you just take because because he, <laughs> he always resolves it within the bar. Mm-hmm. But I'll be doing things like that, taking the music apart, playing little bits, um, and and then and then the audience will fi- finally hear the complete piece. So I'm going I'm going into quite a lot of detail to make, but to be very to be very obvious to a to a non-trained musician what's going on yeah. so it's going oh, to be no, very accessible and, yeah. as I, and it enhances their listening yes, further absolutely. on so I hope and also I would like to broaden the audience's listening because as I talk about the age of the concert and most of the music we hear is basically you know, from Valdi, Valdi through to the 20th century mm. and not much else mm. and, and if you look at the timeline that's a fraction of what, what I'm covering the, what sort of what's the earliest piece of music we would hear at your lectures well the earliest is probably um Plain song, plain, plain chant, song, which okay. is from about 900 AD, and then uh-huh. organum is when they sing in fifths. But, but yeah, right. and then a couple of pieces from the 13th, 14th century. Again, but I mean, a Christmas, car- a lot of our Christmas carols go That's back true. that day. That is true, far as well. But your next piece of music, Grant, <laughs> is Bach. <laughs> yes, of course. A Brandenburg Concerto. Now yeah. there must be a cunning reason why you've chosen to. Well, chosen I, this. I grew up with Bach, and this is one of the earliest pieces of music I knew. We had we had an old LP of this particular piece. My uncle was a Bach fanatic, and, and my brother was. So I grew up in this. And to me, Bach is the core of everything. And, and this particular piece, it's a recording by Trevor Pinnock. The recording must be at least uh, 20, 25 years old now. But it, it, I think it's one of the most exciting recordings, actually, that I've ever heard of Bach. It's got such energy. But these yeah. also were the recordings when the so-called period instrument movement yes. was picking up. That Trevor Pinnock was so Yes, he, he, he was one of, the, one of the first ones, yes. Yeah. And of course, um, Nicholas Harnacourt. I mean, I discovered Nicholas Harnacourt in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And that, so I've always been a bit of a uh, very keen on the period instrument. But this particular recording is incredibly exciting.
Brandenburg Concerto Number no. 4 by Bach. That was the third movement, and the English concert directed by Trevor Pinnock and another choice of my guest, Grant McLaughlin, here on Fine Music Radio this week. Just, Grant, I want to move away from your talks at the UCT Summer School next week and find out a bit more about you. I read at the beginning that you were born in Pretoria and moved to Cape Town. We associate you, I think, with Cape Town. Yes. But you do, did spend a lot of time overseas. Was music always part of your life? Yes, it was. I mean, I, I went straight from school to, to go to university overseas as an undergraduate degree. Okay. And to study music at Oxford. And, and luckily, I was um, accepted as a choral scholar, as I, as I said before. <laughs> and then for many years, um, I, I, did a, I did a master's in composition at King's College. And then for many years, I taught. And and then, in my early thirties, I did a, another master's degree in film composition, and I came back here in '94, and I started a career in writing music for films and documentaries, mostly wildlife documentaries. Mm-hmm. I seem to have got in sort of niche of doing yes. wildlife documentaries. <laughs> There's a lovely little <laughs> quote here: "Embarked in a career in composing for the screen, specialising in natural history." And here it says that he's written music for every imaginable creature. Condors, whales, cheetahs, lions, leopards, tigers, hyenas, wild dogs, wolves, dugongs, penguins, sharks, baboons, elephants, <laughs> snakes, proboscis monkeys. Is yes. this true? Is yes, this that's true? right. Well, how do you do that? Well, it's quite interesting writing music for, for film because we talked about, again, the age of the concert where mm. the audience... Um, has 100% of attention on the performers. Well, film, you can't do that. Film, you have to slot in there and almost be unnoticed. 
in in drama, um, mu- music can take a very important emotional role. But for documentary, music's almost not allowed to be there. So you've got to be very, very subtle. And there's a very small emotional sort of slot that you've got to fit in there. And so I think I've, uh, hopefully I've you know, found out how to do that. Mm-hmm. And and what's what's great is working with these filmmakers who often scientists who go into filmmaking. So they may spend two years working on a documentary. And you work very closely. It's, it's like an intellectual equal in many ways. Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah. But what intrigues me is I think it is very easy to underestimate film music because a lot of the film music we hear is, I, I used to use the word and I amuse my colleagues, nebulous. Yes. Uh, away from the cinema. But then there's music that is absolutely genius that's been written for film. And so... Is it satisfying for you to do this sort of thing? He asked. Uh, absolutely satisfying. I mean, I love collaborating for a start. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, a couple of things about film music. I believe that the music must be there for a purpose. I'd rather have silence mm-hmm. if it's not doing anything. And in fact, silence is one of the most powerful tools you can use as a composer. And so when the music does come, it actually it really has an impact. And music can either tell you what's on the screen. For example, if there's a green field, you can have pretty music. Or it can tell you what's off screen. Yeah. So you could have so sinister, sinister music. So you yeah. can tell, anticipate something. So you, you, it's a very, very powerful tool. And so often I've, I've had filmmakers come and say, oh, this scene's not working very well. The music's got to save it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that gives me a challenge to, you know, to try and, and make, make you, something of it. Do you f- it sounds as though you're quite busy doing these well, things. Well, I've been very, very busy for 25 years. Um, it's slacked off a bit because um, the whole nature of the film industry is completely changing. Um, the budgets have dropped dramatically over the last 20, 30 years. Because there are more and more channels to fill, so, mm-hmm. uh, so so quite often film companies use library music rather than commissioning. It's been I mean, a fantastic thing, and and there's one particular company I've done a lot of work for, called Table Mountain Films, who are based here in London. Got Joe Kennedy. Um, in fact, that's my next piece of music is is um, uh, are based on a film directed by Joe Kennedy. Now, this was an Animal Planet special, a 70 minute film. Uh, and it is the filmmaker spent two years underwater filming humpback whales, st- and including a sort of a, a day-old humpback baby. And it's the most beautiful story. Um, unusual in that it's quite slow, because quite often you can't be too slow in film, because they, they don't like it, because you, know, you lose the audience. <laughs> but this is absolutely beautiful. Um, and I used about 10 or 12 local musicians for that. But I was also lucky enough... In 2007, this film was screened live in London as part of Animal Planet's 10th anniversary. And the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra um, accompanied the film live. Good grief. Which That's a feather in your cap. I know, it's absolutely <laughs> wonderful, yeah. Um, and connected by Debbie Wiseman, who's quite a well-known British film composer. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it also has its challenges because in the original soundtrack, for example, I used quite a lot of alto flute. And, of course, when you're mixing it, you can just, you can just bring it, mix it up to the fall. But now I've got 34 strings sitting on the stage. And yes. The poor alto flute gets drowned. Yes. So I had to sort of re rejig the orchestration a little bit for for that performance. So what are we going to hear now? So this, this is this, ri- is, an, this is an excerpt from that film. Okay. Um, and it's it, it's 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 always difficult taking music away from the film, but you just have to imagine a beautiful underwater shot of a of a, a humpback mother, and the baby is so light it floats to the surface so what happens the mother tucks the baby under its body to stop it floating to the surface so this is a a very gentle piece and the voice you hear um, here is Amanda Tiffin which people know here and the cello solo here is Marion Lewin another K-Time musician
Well, there's music written by my guest, Grant McLaughlin, an excerpt from Ocean Voyages, an Animal Planet documentary. And Grant, you set us up for how to listen to that. And I think many people will have an image in their mind now of that music. And Grant, before we go back to talking about your your lectures at the UCT Summer School, um, I notice you do things like a sonatina for double bass and piano, which you wrote for Leon Bosch. So do you do, apart from the film scores you write, do you do a fair amount of concert music? Yes, I do. Um, and I've been doing more recently. Um, I said about three years ago, I wrote that uh, sonatina for, for Leon Bosch. Um, I also revived a quintet I'd written in the 90s, for, mm-hmm. which is the same as the trout, with piano, violin, viola, cello, double bass. I'm sort of completing a, a sonata at the moment for Coranglay piano, and I've also got a concerto in mind, but that'll for viola. Oh, for viola, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I've, I've continued, I've always written quite a bit of choral music. Um, the best known probably people may is Come Colors Rise, which is... Seems to be performed every Christmas. That's right. And <laughs> Vox perform your works, don't yes, they? Yes, Vox have performed one or two of my works, yes. At uh, Christmas time. And recently I've written um, something for, well, it, it was actually David Orr who, who used to be cathedral organist here for his, for his school at Epworth. It was a, a setting of four poems by four South African female writers, including Olive Schreiner, Anki Kroch. And Herschel performed perform that regularly, in fact. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, you know, the choral music, having having a choral background, you know, that's, again, one of my passions. Yeah. So at the moment, I mean, it makes you sound quite busy, may I say. I mean, mm. I almost wanted to say, you know, when you talk to a musician, what's your real job? Yes. I mean, do you <laughs> teach still or are you mostly? Well, I haven't. I stopped teaching in 1992 when I got into the film music. But mm-hmm. uh, recently I've diversified and have been doing a bit of teaching, which I actually found very, very refreshing after all. You know, I think teachers do get very burnt out when they're teaching full-time mm-hmm. year after year. I find I've come back to slightly fresh. So I'm, I'm doing a, been doing a little bit of teaching, standing in for some other teachers. I'm doing quite a about getting my piano back up, so I'm doing some accompanying as well. But I've got a long list of commissions. Of Concert commissions don't pay a huge amount, but they are incredibly satisfying. Sure. I had a, a very nice one this, earlier this year, uh, commissioned by Becky Steltzner, who's at the College of Music, and was performed by Becky and Francois Dutoy and um, Frida Brakarova, a, a trio. Um, and that sort of chamber music is what, what I really do really enjoy. Mm-hmm. And how would you describe your style when it comes to chamber music, which we're not going to be able to hear on yeah. this program? Is it, uh, I'm going to use that word, accessible? Well, it is very accessible, <laughs> yes. I mean, I went through the 80s like all of us. We were told we weren't allowed to write a major third. and we were, you know, Everything had to be dissonant and not done before. And I sort of came out of that scathed, unscathed. Um, and I wrote this, the quintet I referred to in 1992, which is my sort of piece, which is like um, emancipation, sort of coming out of that. And then mm-hmm. I got into writing a bit of theatre music and then the film music, where you can just write tunes. And you know. Now I'm sort of doing a bit of hybrid. And certainly, I mean, like that, that sonatina for double bass is very accessible. It's, it's, it's a, but I've, it's, I use dissonance in a way which which is um, very accessible and understandable. So there's, mm-hmm. there's always reference points for the audience. Uh-huh. So I'm using a sort of combination now. Okay. And do you, as a musician and as a composer and the sort of eclectic s- style, really, that you have, do you listen, do you sit down and listen to a string quartet by Beethoven or a symphony yes, well, by Brahms? Well, I do, and I do listen to a lot of music. Um, uh, I tend to sort of avoid the age of the concert, as, as we say, and I tend to I listen to a lot of early music. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, Tompkins, Gibbons, Tallis, Shepard, all the early English music. Um, and then quite a lot of 20th century music with Prokofiev, Shostakovich, 
uh, Messian. Okay. And I try to keep up with you know people like John Adams and things that are very, are very interesting in the, 20, mm-hmm. in the late twentieth century. Have you ever tackled opera? No, I haven't. Although I've got a, I've got a sort of um, a very good sort of subject. <laughs> a little smile uh, crossing under, your face. Uh, <laughs> yeah, under my cap, there's a, there's a, a very good subject for an opera which may at some stage emerge. Mm-hmm. But, but you've, but, d- but I haven't, I haven't yet. Oh. Well, I've actually, I've written, um, I've written a couple of musicals. Which was because uh, when I was the director of an of a amateur operatic society when I was living in England. Oh, okay. Yeah, so so you sort of dipped your finger I've in dipped so fin- I've dipped my finger so in it, yeah. Gosh, so now just to get back before we end, because as always, time goes quickly when mm. you're having fun. Well, at least I'm having fun. I hope you are. <laughs> I am. Um, the talks that you're doing, it's the UCT Summer School Lectures, the 22nd, 23rd, and 24th yep. of January at the Baxter Concert Hall. And remember that title, A Brief History of Harmony, the Universe, and Everything. And you've given us something to, I think, appetites have certainly been mm. whetted. And how do you think you'll feel afterwards? Do you will think, I suppose you'll think there's so much more I could have done and maybe uh, have another series next year? Uh, absolutely. I think perhaps this is the start of something because um, I've had to focus myself very very carefully as to what to put into this because because I keep on going on, on other strands and saying, hang on, I've just got, I must keep focused. And I try to keep it a very particular sort of line which goes through the three evenings, mm-hmm. like reference points, mm-hmm. so that the audience, you know, for example, this happened in the Defy from the 15th century. Now I listen to what Chopin does and, the, you know, right, and, you, and right. try and connect it. So I have to be very disciplined in how, but there's certainly there's going to be more coming out of this. And the fact that they illustrated with these musicians that we know, Becky Stelsner, mm. Albie von Salkbeck, Lucia Scott, Graham Duplessis, Vox will be there. Yes. So it's going to be quite entertaining, I should think. Yeah, I think so. You're the fabulous, fabulous musicians. So. And let me know when you write your book on the major third, <laughs> which <laughs> came up again, because that's going to be fascinating. I yeah. wish we had a keyboard here to play a major third, but mm. we don't. Well, there's no such thing as a major third, because it, there's so many different ways of working it out. That mm-hmm. it's, it could be, you know, because the, the major third on the, on the modern tuning system is actually completely out of tune. Oh, dear. <laughs> I'm not going to go there again. <laughs> Grant McLaughlin, let's leave it there. But your last piece of music is by Messiaen. Yeah. Now tell me. Now this this is one of the most extraordinary pieces of music. It's it's part of the quartet which he wrote in the prisoner of war camp, I think in 1942-43. And its first audience was something like 5,000 prisoners. Oh, we probably didn't know what would hit them. Yeah. But luckily in the same prisoner of war camp, there was a very good clarinetist, violinist, and cellist. So he wrote this quartet. This particular piece is for cello and piano. And it suspends time in the sense that it doesn't have a conventional meter. The piano just plays continuous repeated chords, sometimes it's 12 in a row, sometimes 5 in a row, sometimes 7 in a row, with this heartbreaking melody on the cello above it. I mean, this is, the, this is to me, one of the most beautiful pieces of music from the 20th century. Gosh, okay. Let's hope it opens up a new world for many people to investigate yeah. this piece. Grant McLaughlin, thank you very much. Great pleasure.
People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions. Something magical is coming your way this festive season. Captain Hook's dropping anchor and Tinkerbell is flying in specially. The Lost Boys will be found and Wendy's in the house. Be awestruck by the most dazzling skating ever seen as Peter Turin presents the world-famous Imperial Ice Stars in this spectacular and new show, Peter Pan on Ice. Experience this much-loved family classic at the Artscape Opera House from January 15th to February 2nd, 2020. Book now. 